I'm one of the leaders here. It's a pleasure to see you, especially if you're new. You may have literally just arrived in London. It's so good to see you. And I just pray now as we open up God's word and we, we explain it, understand it, let it hit us, go into our hearts and our minds. Let's pray that that'll be a real blessing to you. Um, so l- let me pray that for us. Let's pray. Um, Father, we are so grateful that you have spoken. That is an incredible thing. You are there and you are not silent. And so we can hear your voice right now. And that's what we long for. Thank you for your Holy Spirit's power. Give us attentiveness, Lord, if we're tired. Um, wake us up so that we'll be ready to hear you. And I pray that most of all you give us receiving hearts that are ready to listen to what you say to us. Lord, may we bend the knee, bow, and listen and live according to your amazing grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Great, so we are working through a series in Mark's Gospel. We started this pretty much when we started, a year ago, which is very exciting. We took a break. A year would be a long time to get through Mark's Gospel. But we're back in it now, um, and we're picking up in Mark chapter 9 today. So open up your Bibles to page 1013. We're in Mark chapter 9, verse 30. Mark chapter 9, verse 30, page 1013. We're going to go through to the end of the chapter. So this is Jesus with his disciples. They left that place and passed through Galilee. Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were because he was teaching his disciples. He said to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him. and After three days he will rise. But they did not understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him about it. They came to Capernaum when he was in the house. He asked them, what were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet, because on the way, they had argued about who's the greatest. Sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said, anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. He took a little child whom he placed among them. Taking the child in his arms, he said to them, whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. Teacher said, John, we saw someone driving out demons in your name and we told him to stop because he was not one of us. Do not stop him, Jesus said, for no one who does a miracle in my name can in the next moment say anything bad about me. For whoever is not against us is for us. Truly, I tell you, anyone who gives you a cup of water in my name because you belong to the Messiah will certainly not lose their reward. If anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble It would be better for them if a large millstone was hung around their neck and they were thrown into the sea. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands go into hell where the fire never goes out. And if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than have two eyes and be thrown into hell where the worms that eat them do not die and the fire is not quenched. Everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can you make it salty again? Have salt among yourselves and be at peace with one another. I want to start by thinking about this idea of having a code for your life, how you live your life. Your code for life is kind of those, those principles, those values which shape how you live. 
so your code might be as much pleasure as possible. That's your thing. That's what you live for. And you, you decide how to live based on what's going to get you pleasure. I met a guy the other day. We were, we were just chatting about life and what's important to us. And he said, to be honest with you, Phil, I live for cash. He just is honest. I live for cash. That's his code. He says, I want to get as much cash as possible, and I'll spend it however I want. That's his code for life, cash. Perhaps your code is something like whatever will bring you and your family most happiness and peace. But we will have one of these codes that dominates our thinking and shapes how we live. What's yours? If I was to get to know you, spend some, some time with you, what would I say? That's the thing that they live by. That's how they decide what to do in their lives and how to live. That's their code. What our code for life is really matters. In fact, this passage we're going to look at now tells us that the code we live by is a matter of life or death. It's a matter of heaven and hell. It's that serious. So that's what we're going to look at. See, in this section of Mark, Jesus has been teaching his disciples about their code for living, how they should live if they're going to follow him. In 8 verse 31, which is kind of the beginning of this section, he tells his disciples he's going to suffer, be rejected, be killed, and rise after three days. And then he does something really extraordinary. He takes his pattern of death for the sake of others, life and glory later, and he says to his disciples, if you're going to follow me, that's going to be your code for life as well. The code for Jesus' followers is self-denial, sacrifice now, glory later, just like Jesus. So Jesus calls us to live by the code of death and resurrection discipleship. Death and resurrection discipleship. Now we get to our passage that we're in today, and Jesus wants to have some exclusive time with his disciples. You see that in verse 30. They left that place, passed through Galilee. Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were because... He was teaching his disciples. Okay, so he's got them. No one else is there. This is private time with the disciples. He's sitting them down. He's going to talk to them. What does he tell them about? Verse 31. He said to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days he will rise. Strange. Jesus has already told them this. In 831, he said pretty much exactly the same thing. So the question we should ask when we see that, oh, he's repeating himself, why does he repeat himself? What does that tell us? It tells us, it's like a signal to us that he's going to tell us more about what this death and resurrection discipleship looks like. Because last time he said, this is what's going to happen to me. I'm going to die. I'm going to rise. That's what it's going to be like for you. Suffering now, glory later. If he's saying it again, I'm going to die. I'm going to rise. We know some more is going to follow about what it looks like for us. So let's see how the disciples respond. So Jesus said, the son of man, that's his kind of code word for saying, I'm the son of God, the one who has all authority and power, will be delivered into the hands of men, killed, three days later rise, greatness, death, glory. And then verse 32, they say, well, they did not understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him about it. And don't you find that slightly strange? Not understanding, that's okay, this is early days, Jesus rising from the dead, that's a little bit odd. They're going to have questions, I would have questions, I do have questions. But then they don't ask him their questions. That's a little bit strange. See, having questions isn't a bad thing. Just like we saw last week, when we have doubts, that kind of the if of our doubts, that's not bad. The question is, what do you do with your doubts? Do they lead you away from Jesus or do they lead you to Jesus? It's the same with our questions. We don't understand. That's okay. God, God gets that. 
But do you take your questions away from Jesus or do you go to him and ask? Disciples, they go the other way. They just remain in ignorance because they're not, they're not trying to understand what Jesus is talking about. Okay, but here's the thing. If the code for Christian living is supposed to be shaped by Jesus' death and resurrection, and they don't understand Jesus' death and resurrection, and they're not trying to, then what code are they living by? The cross and resurrection is the key to being saved and living saved. So what's the life code for these disciples who don't understand the death and resurrection of Jesus and aren't trying to understand it? Well, we get a glimpse of it in verse 33. So they've heard this from Jesus. They don't understand it. They don't get his death and resurrection. They're not living by it. So they came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet because on the way they'd argued about who was the greatest. Imagine the disciples' face. Okay, you know, there they are. So, what are you talking about? Oh, he heard us. We thought he was a little bit further ahead. You were too noisy when you were arguing. And they respond. They keep quiet. They're ashamed. They know they shouldn't have been talking about who's the greatest. So, do the disciples have a code for living? Yes. <laughs> They do. They've got priorities. They've got desires. They've got things they want which shape how they live. What's their code? Me. Self. Self-greatness. That's what they're after. Think about it from their point of view. The Messiah is here, the Son of Man, who will finally bring restoration to the people of God and, and get rid of their enemies. And they're the special ones. They're the twelve. How exciting for them. This is special. Which one is most special is the question. There's surely a pecking order. You can't have 12 equal special people. There must be this pecking order. See, when Jesus shows up on BBC News and when um, Jesus' face is up there, there's going to be, is it going to be James there, chief of staff? Is it going to be Peter, close advisor? Who's it going to be? Who's going to be at the top? But can you feel the kind of crunching gears in the story? Where did we start? We started with Jesus saying, I'm going to be killed and handed over and I'm going to rise from the dead. They don't understand, they don't try and understand, and then they begin to daydream. No, they begin to argue about who's the greatest. That's actually quite an ugly thing to start talking about when Jesus has just said he's going to die. But that's, that's what happens when Jesus' death and resurrection isn't the code that you live by. That's what we're seeing in the disciples. They've not understood it, they're not trying to understand it, so they're going another way. See, we can bear the name disciple like these guys, but the badge is meaningless if the cross and resurrection haven't shaped our thinking and living. They didn't understand and they didn't ask. So they're like an example to us. They're showing us the opposite of living by the code of death and resurrection. And it's living by the code of self-greatness. So again, I ask, what code are you living by? The best way sometimes to see how to do something is to put it side by side with how not to do something. So if I was teaching you how to play, play guitar, Anna's learning how to play guitar, I might show her some chords. This is how you play these chords. Actually, this is how some people play this chord, but that's a bit, a bit rubbish. You shouldn't play it that way. This is better. I should show how to play it right. And putting side by side, this is how not to do it, and this is how to do it, helps see what the best way is. And that's basically what Mark does in the rest of this passage. He has these little exhibits side by side of 
This is what it looks like to be shaped by the death and resurrection of Jesus and live for him. And this is what it looks like to be shaped by self. Code of death and resurrection, code of self. And he puts them next to each other. So we're going to spend the rest of our time looking at these little exhibits that Mark puts before us. Okay? So, exhibit A of death and resurrection discipleship is the child. Can I have props? But I don't have a ch- well, I do have a child. But to ask her to sit on this table for 20 minutes or whatever is a bit harsh. So I have a teddy bear, which, of course, you're thinking, that's a very hairy child. It's a teddy bear, in case you're wondering. So here it, this is representing exhibit A, the child. Have a look with me in verse 35. Sitting down, Jesus called the 12 and said, anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. He took a little child whom he placed among them, taking the child in his arms. He said to them, whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. So he sits the disciples down as their teacher. They didn't tell him about their argument, but he knows, right? He's Jesus. He knows what they're talking about. And he wants to tip their thinking upside down. See, ambition to be great isn't the problem. He says, whoever wants to be first. But he says, you're looking in the wrong place for greatness. They must be the very last of all if they want to be first. They must be the servant of all. Firstness equals lastness. Greatness equals service. But I want you to spot how radical this is. What does he say? The very last. This isn't near the bottom. This isn't having an impression of humility. Some people have this air of humility, but they're not actually very humble. No, this is real. In reality, you are the least important person in your world. That's how you think of yourself. And I guess we go, well, yeah, I guess I, I know some other people who are important to me. No, 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 no. Spot how radical this is. Servant of all. First century servants were the bottom of the pile. Greatness, according to Jesus, is being bottom of the pile, all of the pile. Everyone's above you. Now, this is an easy sermon to preach in some ways because it comes with visual aids because Jesus has the child. I don't. I have a hairy bear. So Jesus, visual aid, picks up the child, boy, girl, I don't know, and places it. Can you refer to children as it? The child in the middle of these greatness-seeking disciples. Imagine the twelve. There's this little child in the middle. And then see what Jesus does. Verse 36. He takes the child into his arms. That's the visual aid. That's exhibit A of death and resurrection discipleship. It's got nothing to do with children being cute, though they are, or innocent or humble. This has everything to do with, in that society, children being bottom of the pile. They're bottom of the pile. And what does Jesus do? He embraces them. See, he's not above the least. He's showing he embraces the least. See, living by the code of death and resurrection discipleship takes the most unattractive, uninteresting, unimportant in the world and says, you are more interesting, more attractive, more important than me. That's what Jesus is doing by taking this child in his arms. And as we do that, we welcome God himself. But remember, we've been saying that Jesus' death and resurrection is the thing that shapes this. So how does Jesus' cross produce this kind of servant heart in us? Well, we keep coming back to this verse in Mark 10, which we'll, we'll look at more carefully in a few weeks, where Jesus says, Even the Son of Man, the great Son of Man, did not come to be served, but to serve 
and give his life as a ransom for many. He is greater than everyone on the planet. But he became a servant of everyone on the planet by going to the cross to rescue us from our sin. Jesus is the greatest servant. Do you see that? So we look at him, the greatest servant, from the highest place to the lowest place, and we go, that's our pattern. That's how we live. Our code? Servants of all. That's exhibit A of living the death and resurrection life. But next we get exhibit A of living the code of self. And for this we get the stop sign. Oh, look at that. Okay, you know it's there. So, stop sign, verse 38. Keep, keep the flow. This, this isn't another time. John, hearing all this, says, Teacher, uh, we saw someone driving out demons in your name and told him to stop because he was not one of us. Okay, feel the absurdity of what's going on. Jesus said, be servant of all, least of all, welcome the least, even children in my name. John, ah, yes, that reminds me. You'll be really proud because someone was driving out demons in your name and I told him to stop. Why, you ask? Because he was one of us. Exhibit A of living a life disconnected from the cross and resurrection is putting up stop signs for other believers. Look carefully. What's the issue with what this person's doing? Are they doing something good? Yes, they're driving up demons. That's what Jesus has been doing. Are they doing it effectively? It seems so. Are they doing it in Jesus' name? Yes, they're not, putting up, they're not being rivals to Jesus. So what's John's problem? He was not one of us. The issue here is that the disciples' self-greatness code of living has led them to put up these stop signs. If you're not one of the 12, you can't be in. It's all about them. It's all about us. Who is welcomed is determined by their connection to me, to us, rather than to Jesus. See, this is what happens when the cross and resurrection aren't allowed to shape our Christian living. It becomes about who's connected to me, to us, to our little group, rather than who's connected to Jesus because he died and rose for them. And one year on, church family, this is something we've got to guard against. Your connection to the Globe Church means zip. Nothing. Your connection to Jesus Christ means everything. And it's the same for all other believers. If the cross becomes small in our thinking, we'll find some other code for deciding who's in or out. We'll make it about us. Jesus' death and resurrection makes it all about who's connected to him. That's exhibit A of living for self. We put up stop signs with other believers. Exhibit B of living the code of death and resurrection discipleship. The cup of water. There's no water in it. But imagine, cup of water. Look at verse 39. So John has just put up stop signs and Jesus says, do not stop him. Jesus said, for no one who does a miracle in my name can in the next moment say anything bad about me. For whoever is not against us is for us. Truly, I tell you, anyone who gives you a cup of water in my name because you belong to the Messiah will certainly not lose their reward. So the opposite of putting up stop signs for other believers is to give in Jesus' name. Jesus says, 
Don't stop this believer. If, if they're doing miracle in my name, something good, then they're not going to turn around the next minute and be against me. Their actions show that they're on our side. If they're not working against us, they're for us. So don't exclude people by your code of self. Instead, do this. He shows us what we should do. Jesus is saying, you know, imagine with me, someone isn't driving out demons in my name, but they're giving out cups of water in my name. This is deserty place. This is Middle East. This is hot. And they're giving out cups of water to people because they're believers. The code of living that is shaped by Jesus leads to giving, not stopping. Now, the beauty and challenge of this exhibit of being shaped by Jesus, I think, is its simplicity. How can we practically, you might ask, live out this death and resurrection discipleship we keep talking about? This kind of tells us, well, there are a thousand different ways we can live this out. John wants to limit service to a few. I told him to stop. Jesus blows it wide open and says, anyone can do this. So as a church family, let's be looking for those simple, everyday ways to serve each other in Jesus' name. Maybe you're going to meet someone today after the service over whatever we're eating later, who's just turned up in London. Ask how you can help. What can you do? They may have never, they may be new to this country, may have never used the underground before. They may just feel a little bit lost in this big city. I know I did when I moved here. Give them a cup of water. Take them out for a beer. Whatever it is, be welcoming in Jesus' name. Someone may be struggling in some way in our church, just feeling down. Just talk about that. Pray for them. If there's someone sitting on their own, sit with them. Do you know what I mean? There's just a thousand different ways we can give a cup of water, as it were. And I want to say, if you're, if you're new to the Globe Church, you just turned up here and you want to know what we're about, we want to live this way, which means this is not a church for people with no needs. This is not a church for Christians who've got it sorted because they don't exist. This is a church where we all have needs and we have each other to meet those needs. For every need there is in this church, there's a death and resurrection shaped discipleship ready, disciple ready to meet that need. And we, we do that for each other because we're family. We want to have Jesus' servant heart. Now we've got to keep tying this lifestyle that we're talking about back to the source of this lifestyle. What's the thing that shapes the servant-hearted life? Jesus' servant heart. So how does this connect to him? Well, Jesus died and rose to meet our greatest need. He took, we sang about this in the last song, the wrath reserved for me fell on him. He secured for us an eternity. Imagine this. If you're feeling needy right now, imagine this. Jesus on the cross secured for you an eternity where you will never feel that again. That longing, that, that feeling of need, of desperation, you will never feel that again in the new creation. Jesus died to meet every need we have. And if we've tasted that kind of radical service, let it shape us to have that kind of radical love for each other. Okay, next exhibit. Exhibit B now of living the code of self. And this is um, something that makes you stumble. Stumbling. Now, when we're preparing for church, I always stumble over these because James Doc leaves them everywhere. So... <laughs> The stumbling block. Look at verse 42. This is actually very serious. If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble into sin, that means it would be better for them 
if a large millstone were hung around their neck and they were thrown into the sea. So the issue here is causing people to stump, to, to sin, to fall into sin. If how I act is ultimately about me, there's going to be collateral damage. And the damage here is causing another believer to sin. Now, I think often the pursuit of self-greatness doesn't happen alone. It's not a privatized kind of sin. Um, Think of the disciples. What were they doing when they showed their self-greatness? They were arguing about it. You know, you can imagine one of them starts off the argument. So who do you reckon it's going to be? And then that just gives the others license. And then it becomes this group thing. They've caused each other to sin. And maybe for us that looks like one person just planting that thought. You know that person at church who is just different, a bit odd? Sparked off the other person. Yeah, actually I found them quite irritating. And then the next person says, actually did you hear about what they did the other day? And they tell the story. And do you see that that little conversation where they've given each other license to say that thing in in a proud and arrogant way has given the others license to sin as well? And they join in and that conversation turns into a clique, which turns into a faction. And this group has just led each other into sin. Jesus warns. This is such an awful thing to do, it's worse than being drowned. It would be better for them to be drowned than to lead someone else into sin. The code of the cross says, serve, bless, do good to others. Deny yourself that urge to say or do something that other people are going to join in with. But if the cross is little in our mind and heart, then we won't deny in ourselves that pack mentality of sin where we all just want to join in. If your code is the cross and resurrection, it will really matter to you whether you cause someone else to sin. The idea of causing someone to sin will really hurt you. Because Jesus died to forgive them. You don't want to cause them to sin more. Okay, so here's where we're up to. We have exhibit A of the death and resurrection life, the child, where Jesus shows us what it is to be the least and to embrace the least, to be servant of all. We have exhibit A of living for self, where we put stop signs and stop other believers because they're not one of us. We have exhibit B of living shaped by the cross and resurrection where we give the cup of water, loving, serving, And we have exhibit B of living for self where actually we just join that pack mentality and bring others into our sin. Okay, we've got to our final exhibit. And and this one's really important, I think. And if you're feeling sleepy or you've wandered, come back here for this. I just want to really focus on this last one. Have a look with me at verse 43. This is the last exhibit of death and resurrection discipleship. And it's this. The surgical scalpel. Verse 43. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go into hell, where the fire never goes out. If your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell where the worms that eat them do not die and the fire is not quenched. Jesus says this, think of your your sin, the things that you're prone to. Every one of us will have something that comes to mind when I say that. 
Maybe you get angry easily. You build up resentment. Maybe you feel pride in your heart. Whatever that is, imagine that sinful anger is a limb on your body. And he says, do some surgery. Amputate it. Um, Apparently, when... If you, if you have um, an amputation, you may have had one. Um, you get a marker pen and you, you say which limb it is. So like, if they're cutting off the left arm, you say, this arm, not this arm, so they don't cut off the wrong one. I saw it in an episode of House once, so it must be true. <laughs> Jesus is basically saying this. Look at your life. Get out the marker pen and mark those things in your life that need to go. And then get the scalpel and do some surgery on it. You can keep embracing your anger if you want, but that way of just embracing your sin, that leads to hell. It's better to do the painful surgery of severing the limb of sin and enter God's kingdom than to take the easy path of just indulging in sin now and walking away from Jesus. Do you gaze with your eyes in lust at other men and women who you are not married to? Or do you gaze at stuff you're going to buy with your next paycheck and your heart is after those things? Do some spiritual surgery and get rid of that sin. You can keep going with that sin if you want, but that will lead to hell, this terrifying place of eternal torment. Or you can follow the code of self-denial of the death and resurrection of Jesus and enter eternal life. I don't know if you've you've got scars. You you might have scars um, from surgery or other things. The thing is with scars is they, they tell a story. And it, and it may be that if you, if you have scars, they tell a very sad and painful story for you. But, but they all tell a story. I, I, have, I have a couple of scars. And I, when I was like two, some other child bit me in the eye, which was nice. So I have a scar under my left eye. Um, yes, that's a short story. I have another scar on my hand, on my finger, where I broke my finger. That wasn't so nice. But as a result of this and needing surgery, I got to know Vicky and, and we got married. So my scar tells this story. Those who let the cross and resurrection be their code for life will have many scars that tell stories of their taking sin seriously and rooting it out. Christians have spiritual scars. We'll get to heaven and as it were, have these scars that tell stories of change. You see that in verse 47. It's figurative, but you get the point. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell. Just imagine being in heaven and there's Bob. Bob, you've only got one eye. Where do I look? Um, You've only got one eye. Why do you only have one eye? Oh, well, I took death and resurrection discipleship seriously and so I got rid of my sin. Now it's an image, but, but you get the point. There are these scars. This has happened to us. We go after our sin And we bear that for the rest of our lives. And there'll be parts of our lives, and I want you just to examine your own heart. Attitudes, habits, ways of speaking, ways of thinking, desires, ways of acting, where our living by the code of death and resurrection demands that we get that marker pen out. We've got to get serious about this sin. We've got to deal with it and get rid of it in God's strength. If you live by the code of self, I won't even bother you. You might think I haven't got anything or you can think of all sorts of ways in which you know you're not living God's way and people may have told you you're not living God's way, but you're not addressing it. But now you've been redeemed. Now Jesus was put to death to forgive you for your sin. The new code of life 
is to put to death that sin. I want to remind us of something which we kind of know probably, but I don't often think about. You know that Jesus has scars. Like right now, he rose from the dead, he has a body, he's in heaven. He has scars right now, which he can look at and and see. And the scars on his hands and his feet from where he was killed on the cross are the scars that secure for us heaven instead of hell. He has the scars of hell on him so that if we trust in him, we don't have to go to hell. That's the good news of Mark's gospel. Jesus has scars. And I want to invite us, if we read these words about hell and we wonder what hope there could be for someone like us who have lived for self, hear this. Jesus in this story is on the way to the cross where he will die in our place to forgive us for living by the code of self. He experienced the punishment of hell so that we don't have to if only we'll trust in him. If only we'll leave self behind and lean on him. Which leads us to a question. Well, if Jesus died on the cross to rescue us from hell, why do we need to start doing this surgery on our sin? Now, I want to be really clear. This is what Jesus is not saying. He is not saying, clean yourself up, do some surgery on your sin. You get serious, then I'll think about letting you into my kingdom. Then you'll avoid hell. That is not what Jesus is saying. He's saying this. The Son of Man will be delivered over for you and killed in your place as a ransom for your sin. And if you've received that forgiven life, that will flow into a new life where the code is to fight the sin the cross forgave. I want to say that again because this is so important. If you've received the forgiven life of the cross, that will flow into a new life where our new code is to fight the sin that the cross once and for all forgave. These scars that we'll have of our rooted out sin are the fruit of our salvation, not the root. Jesus' scars are the roots. But we must hear the warning of this passage this afternoon. If we take a look at our lives and we say we're followers of Jesus, and you know what? There aren't any scars. If there isn't this code of fighting sin, not perfection, but at least a fight, then we ask, are we really connected to the cross that's the fruit of of it all? Because the saving root of the cross will lead to the transforming fruit. And we kind of look backwards along the line, and if we're not pursuing at all this transformed life, then Jesus is saying, ask the question, are you connected to the forgiving root of the cross? How do we respond to this? Let the fear of hell drive each one of us to Jesus' cross. His scars save us from hell. And hear the call to a new code. Be ruthless with the sin that he saved us from because eternal life awaits. Death now, denial now, glory later. And as a church, let's talk, let's pray, let's help each other with this surgery. If, 
if there's something you want to talk about off the, off the back of this, let's talk about it. We, we need each other. We get the marker pen and we help each other out and we deal with this together. So we all have a code that we live by. The disciples' code wasn't the death and resurrection of Jesus at this point. It was self. But the call of Christ to every single one of us this afternoon is to let the cross and resurrection of our Savior that saves us be the cross and resurrection that transforms us. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, thank you for your honesty with us. You don't just um, tell us we're fine and tell us to get on with it, but you are so clear about our state. And Lord, we want to together confess our sin. We confess that we so live for ourselves in a hundred different ways. But we praise you so much for the death of your son and that he rose again. Thank you for his scars that save us. Thank you for his spirit that changes us. We don't want to go into this week doing this ourselves, having a go in our own strength. We need your grace to flow from the cross to transform us. We are totally dependent upon your power to do this, and we ask for it now in Jesus' name. Amen.